Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Bajedius. Tactics and Maxims. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming to you today to bring you the last episode of Vegetius. It has been a long... We've made it! Been a long road, but all roads, as they say, lead to Rome. And we are yeah. finally there. So, uh, journey over. Pat yourselves <laughs> on the back. We did well. Um, but yeah, so so we're going to be moving on to new material after this. Uh, of course, doing our fiction focus and all that. But uh, we actually have some news for you. Uh, Thumbs is going to be going on a little bit of a sabbatical. Yeah. I am not going to be on for as a regular uh, co-host for the foreseeable future at this point. I'll still be on for like fiction focus episodes and unit realm episodes. We're, I'm, I'm still involved in the podcast. But uh, right now... Just Malark and I's schedule runs almost 100% opposite of each other's at this point yep. in our lives. Yep, yep, yep. Like, I will, I'll wake up at 5 in the morning and be like, oh, I have a text from Malark. I'll return that. And when he wakes up, he, like, he'll read that the same way I did. And <laughs> you'll reply within, like, two minutes. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I have a weird sleep schedule, y'all. Don't try to keep up with me. But, yeah, I don't even try. But uh, what this means is that there is, like, one day a week that we could sort of make this work. And it's just reaching the point that uh, I wasn't making product that I was happy with. Not that, like, I think we're doing a bad show, but, like, I, I wasn't content with my own results of what I was doing. So it's easier to just step away for a little bit. Uh, Malark here has, I mean, you've heard the shows with just him on. I, we've got this. And hopefully when my schedule opens up a little bit or when our stuff can align a little better, I can come back. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, uh, like Thumbs was saying, I, I wasn't particularly keen on flogging an exhausted friend of mine on a bi-weekly basis. You know, he's already suffering from like these long, long days. And then he's coming to me and I'm like, all right, we got to, we got to go. We got to have good energy and all this stuff. And he's just, I, I'm just watching the dark circles under his eyes get darker and darker as the weeks go by. And I'm like, I cannot in good conscience do this to you, man. Like, I just can't. It was just, <laughs> yeah, I can do 10 hour days. I can do 12 hour days. We were hitting on our recording days, me doing like 16 to 18 hours all told. And that's, that too much. I'm a lazy man by nature. So like that is, that is Betty time for me. I think that's a bit too much for most folks, you know, like that's, that's, that's a long day. It's a long day and a long drive that you have and all that sort of thing. So, so like we say, you know, uh, you know, Thumbs and I enjoy doing this together and hopefully here in the near future, our schedules will align as will the stars and we will uh, be able to, to work together again. But 
you'll be stuck with me for the next little bit, and I hope that that's uh, a good thing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And as I said, there will be, I, I will still be doing everything I can to be involved in the podcast. I'll still be helping out with the Patreon. I'll still be on for the fiction focus episodes, kind of the like in between episodes I'm more likely to be around for. And once we start doing like the event correspondence too, uh, we'll, we'll, we're definitely going to have thumbs on for those. Yeah. I will be there for all of that. So, so yeah, we're, we're not saying goodbye as so long as we're saying see you later. <laughs> so much as we're saying, I'm going to take a nap now. <laughs> but in the meantime, what's some what's some good news we have going on? What's some fun stuff that we've been doing? Well, we're we're going to be new, moving to a new book here pretty soon. As everybody knows, we're going to be doing Management of Savagery next by Abu Bakr Naji. In case anybody wants to follow along, we're still about a month away from starting that. In case you want to pick that up, it would be uh, that one's the Canons of Jihad, right, uh, from the Pentagon. Yes. Yep, that's and I I keep forgetting that that's what it's called. Like that that's not its real name. If uh, if you don't already have your own personal FBI agent, you will. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're going to be doing the the fiction focus uh, here immediately, and this is going to be the Imperial Infantryman's Handbook. And so any of you who are Warhammer 40k fans, of course, you'll recognize this as an iconic piece of of. Uh, of lore for the Imperial Guard, but we're also going to try to find ways to ap- ap- appeal it a bit more to, to wargaming as well. That will be a multi-episode book, which is a first one for our fiction focus, but uh, if you have that book and if you've looked at it, it is it is thicker than Vegetius is by a decent amount, so like, it's a didn't want to try to cramp. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how to fix your LAS gun isn't going to be nearly as important for this as... Um, other parts of it but we'll still we didn't want to try to cram that all into one go right right and so again as a, as a, a favor to y'all and to us we're going to be breaking that up into at least two episodes if not three but i i, I think three is going to be the maximum anyway it'll be a nice little little detour uh for a second we always enjoy these fiction focuses and then uh, hopefully we're going to be squeezing in a realm unit report as well. It's been kind of hard to get a hold of people right now on account of the fact that, you know, nobody knows when things are opening up and it's a dark winter and you know, there, there's reasons why things have slowed down. But yeah. Yeah. After yeah. about a year of not doing much, it just sometimes is hard to uh, worry about a timeline on that front. For sure. For sure. And unfortunately, we do have a production schedule. So we're looking into that and hopefully we can track down some info to be able to do one of those for you again. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of the state of the show. Uh, in my personal life, I've got a really nice archery kit that I'm looking forward to trying out as soon as possible. Uh, courtesy of Gorg, not the uh, the bow, mind you. Uh, the bow is like this cool, like Mongolian uh, curved bow that I'm looking forward to trying out that apparently... I was, I was looking at uh, people posting pictures online, and I feel like half of Belagarth is, has got the same bow. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes, particularly since we can't fight right now, I've noticed. Like, a new thing will pop up, and everyone goes, oh, that looks fun, and right. I'm not going to events, so my disposable income is decidedly different than it was before. Uh, and everyone, like, half of Belagarth, I feel like, picked up those Forged Foam Experimental Reds, and half of Belagarth is picking up horse bows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, we're going to see a new meta, I think. When everything emerges, I, I think the meta is going to be a lot more scattered than it has been, just because people haven't been able to practice quite the same. I would imagine it's going to be very similar in Warhammer, 
You know, a, a lot of people have been refraining from doing practices or they're doing much fewer uh, or they're doing, only doing them with a set group of people. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's going to be interesting when everything opens back up again. But, yeah, I'm going the archery direction. Not the, I've already got the min-red, so uh, I want to be able to shoot people from over there. I have basically reworked everything. I could wear none of the stuff I had before the pandemic started, like wear armor, garb, what weapons I'm using, anything. I could do entirely new stuff and have a complete, like, every basically everything I need. So uh, my build time has really going to change my meta a little bit here. Sure, sure. I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of that way. I've seen a lot of people working on armor, a lot of people working on weapons. There's been people who have been using this time to just get ripped and, and work themselves in a lot of ways. So I think we're going to see a large skill disparity once we get back. We're going to have the people like, you know, me and you probably who haven't been keeping up with most of our cardio and are probably going to get winded fairly quickly. And then there's the people like Shy, who, uh, you know, every time he posts pictures, I'm like, I hate you in all the right ways. He somehow has more washboard abs than he used to while well, I get tired going upstairs now. So, uh, yeah, that's, he's <laughs> that's going to be great. <laughs> just gonna he keeps po posting progress pics and I'm like, man, I. I've, I've never looked like that. Like, even when I've been in my best shape, that's just not the way my body looks when I'm in shape. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's something else. So I think, again, we're going to have a little bit of a skill disparity once we all come back, and there's going to definitely be a, a new meta in terms of gear. Um, again, I'm it going the long-distance route. Yeah, it'll be fun. But uh, speaking of, of doing things long-distance, you were a part of a, a long-distance effort recently yourself. Yeah, the, we're recording this about two days after the end of Battle for the Ring Online. I want to say it's it was like Battle for Ring 16, but I don't, I don't even know what I'm guessing. I have no clue there. I don't tend to get heavily involved in the online events, but I really appreciate that people are doing that and trying to like keep up the sense of community and keep up the, the learning. Um, I taught a couple of classes in this one, and there were a couple of classes I wanted to go to, but I just couldn't because I work on the weekends. Sure. Uh, brother, brother Maynard did a like baking class, and God, his stuff looked good. Mm. Uh, people were doing online game sessions. I know Grizzly ran multiple tabletop games. I know there was, I I saw pictures of the Minecraft server that people set up for Battle for the Ring as like this ongoing. Anyone in Belagarth can come here and build this, and it's absolutely insane. That's cool. It's super cool, but it's just like, I don't have the patience for Minecraft, I've realized. I have all sorts of other creative things, but when I tried to play Minecraft, I just like dug straight down until I couldn't get out anymore and found lava and fell into it. I can do, I can do other kind of creative games like that. I enjoy Ark, I enjoy No Man's Sky, uh, you know, Fallout 76 to some degree, but for whatever reason, it's like the pixelated quality of Minecraft. I just can't, I just can't get into it. I get it, and some of the stuff people do is absolutely amazing, though. So I definitely well, want to like. Oh yeah, I can appreciate it for sure. It's just not my thing, you know. Like I, it doesn't have a draw for me. But I've I've seen these amazing things that people have done with it, and and so yeah, it's there's still absolutely cool things you can do for sure. Uh, but I taught two classes. I did another leatherworking class where I made a murder mask, and in this case, it was pretty much just I hung out on Zoom and talked while I was, you know, building. Uh, and then I did a adapting non-fantasy sources into Belagarth legal garb. Hmm. 
where we talked about kind of like some of my basic rules for garb setup, what I think, you know, like I have the kind of base rule of for a complete garb kit, you need at least three pieces, like bottoms, top, and bling. Bling being sure. like a vest or a hood or something that something that makes it look more complete than just like jeans and a t-shirt. Right. And I notice even in real life, people tend to do it like they'll put on like a hat or something. Uh, mm -hmm. It just makes it look more complete. But then we took that and then we picked a non-fantasy source and tried to make garb based off it. And the the one they chose, because I would, and I would have been hoping like, oh, they'll pick like a superhero or like Star Wars or like a, a sci-fi thing. They're like Dexter's Laboratory. Oh. Like, okay. Let's relearn. Let's and then I really quickly realized that I have not watched that show in twenty years, and I only had vague memories of what Dexter actually actually looks like, like what he's like wearing. I know he wears a lab coat. Yeah, yeah that, that's where I was. Um, so we ended up kind of going with a much more like just general mad scientist. So like you know goggles, lab coat, big thick gloves, kind of. It's alive. Right. Right. But it was a lot of fun. We designed a, a kit that is not... It's not the best thing I've ever made, but it was, like, it very much looked like, here is like here's a mad scientist. Here's Belagarth fantasy stuff. We mixed in a little bit of wizard, because, you know, mad magic accidents is kind of the Belagarth equivalent of mad science experiments. Sure. And it was fun. It kind of looks like Troll, but that's just... It's the it's the wizard hat, I think. It's not a bad look, though. That's not a bad look. No, it, it works. It was a long time that I uh, uh, made, like, entire kits based off the way he looked, because I thought he was so cool. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to hear that. I'm sure he'd be somewhat confused to hear that, but... Uh... <laughs> no, I, like I said, I, I started seeing his kits at Chaos Wars and was like, that. I want to look like that. Uh, he was always on point. But yeah, it's cool. It's cool that people can still get together and, and, and do this sort of thing, even on an off year like this, while we're waiting for things to open back up. And uh, yeah, I hope they kind of keep doing it, because it's a really cool way to keep the community together and keep people talking. Well, and doing it as like events is still a very good way of doing it, because it gets, you know, certain people involved like, oh, this time it's these people hosting it. This time it's... You know, some of the, the, the people who would usually run Chaos Wars hosting it. And if we tried to do this just every week, we would we would all burn out and stop doing it. But if it's, you know, like, oh man, I'm sad I'm not Battle for the Ring. But look at these things we can do. It it, uh, it keeps us involved without the same level of, like, burnout that you would risk. For sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. And so it's a it's a nice treat from time to time. Enable, enables us to kind of... To get together and, and still appreciate one another's company. But uh, I think we're about ready to get into this uh, exciting episode. What do you think? I think it's time to wrap up Vegetius. Yeah, so we're going to do so by getting into some real juicy stuff, beginning with Maneuvers in Action. So like a lot of last chapters in these books, uh, especially this first part, the later parts of this episode are quite different than anything we've done before in a lot of ways. But um, this part is a, a lot of this has kind of been covered in the earlier uh, parts of the book, but it lets us just kind of uh, tie a few things together. Recap on some some very important ideas. 
yeah, like, oh, hey, you remember this bit? It's kind of our epilogue section here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, some of this stuff is 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 going to sound familiar. Uh, it, it's more condensed, so it might it's a little bit easier to kind of get the gist of, not quite as, as explained out as it is in earlier chapters. So I think that's part of the reason they do this toward the end of the book is just to be like, all right, in case you got bogged down in the verbiage, this is what this is spark notes. This is what you need to know. Well, and maybe if someone's stuck and they're like, I got to look this up, just go read the last chapter. Right, right, exactly. So this, uh, first off, we want to talk about looking for a favorable opportunity. We touched on this uh, a couple of times, but there's a few things you want to look for as a favorable opportunity in order to engage in a general action. And the first one is if they're tired from a long march. So uh, people who have arrived fresh, like if there's a unit that has arrived and like everybody arrived that day and they decided to go out on the field, that unit is tired from a long march. Something to be remembered. When you're at Chaos Wars and everyone else showed up on Monday, but you don't show up for whatever reason until, uh, uh, say, Thursday, that first day you get there, they're going to be tired. But if you don't fight, and the next day, everyone else is going to be tired from the long march of the like previous several days fighting. Well, you are all fresh and uh, flower-like. I don't know why I went with flower-like there, but y you get my point. Yeah, no, it's kind of a pristine image. I, I get what you're what you're getting at. <laughs> pristine image of murder. I always wondered sometimes, like there were there's some units or and some groups that like some of their best members won't get there until later in the week until like tournaments. And I'm like, are you guys doing this on purpose? Are you keeping them back as a ringer? You know, keeping keeping your champions fresh for that? Because I mean, I mean, Belgarth is more competitive. I could definitely see them doing that. No, I think it has more to do with our. Our better fighters are often our older fighters, so the tournament person who knows, like, every trick in the book can't take a full week off anymore, but he can make sure he shows up for tournament day. Right. Right. I suppose that's true. Uh, this doesn't so much apply to Warhammer. I guess if, if you notice that your opponent is really tired or didn't sleep well or something like that, you might be able to take advantage of that. But I don't think that you necessarily need to, because their lessened state of awareness is going to do that for you. You don't necessarily have to think about it. Yeah, there's. It, it's a little harder to, you know, like I don't know, maybe pop up in the hotel room of the uh, ho hotel at the tourney and be like, "Haha, I'm attacking you! Lay out your army now! Let's do this!" But other than right. that, and that's a very specific situation. I'm not sure many people would be game for it either. Be like, "Dude, I'm tired. Go away!" Like. I don't, I don't think it would Tomorrow work. Tomorrow is playtime. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, this next one, though, is far more doable for both uh, physical and intellectual wargaming, which is if you find your opponent divided in passage, uh, you know, trans moving from one place to another, and they're kind of split apart, that is a great time to hit them. Just think of all of the battles that we've talked about where they attack when they're partway across the river. Mm-hmm. Oh, this part got here, and the other part couldn't get across yet, and then they got smashed. Like, that is... This is battle technique as old as time. A textbook. Yeah, literally. And again, it's the same thing in, in 40k, if you notice that, like... For instance, a lot of the times when a melee unit, or a melee army, is trying to get across the board, you've got slower units and faster units, so you'll start to get a gap that develops between the slower and faster units. This is a really good time to make sure that you are targeting 
those faster units. Even if you're a shooty army, you want to make sure that you're clearing those out so you can deal with the next wave. Forget about their heavies, forget about the things that are coming in from behind, get rid of those opening waves and engage them, uh, you know, 2v1 basically, twice. And yeah, and that's kind of what we're talking about here too. Physical wargaming too. If, they, if a bunch of them come screaming across the field, but half of them are staying back, move quick to deal with the screaming uh, crazies. When Turkey Feathers or Pakshaw or Shy is coming at me, I don't want to like ignore him and like worry about the people who are coming next because if I if there's he's still there by the time I'm coming next, I'm screwed. But man, I might have a chance if we like can swarm Shy and then can swarm whoever comes next. Right. Right, yeah. Again, trying to capitalize on whatever advantage you can is pretty important, and so this is this is a good one. Uh, this next one works kind of, it's it's uh, it's situational, but it's embarrassed in morass. So uh, for for them, it's a matter of like being in a swamp or a marsh, some place where it's hard to move. And certainly in physical war gaming, you do occasionally get mud pits on the field if you have a lot of rain. I remember the Auk, the Auckfest. By the last Auckfest I was at, it rained the entire event, and there was just a whole half of the field that turned into a mud pit. And so if you could get people kind of on an uneven footing over there, like I, I, heck, it happened to me a couple of times where I took a dive uh, because my, my footing gave out. And so, yeah, that, that happens. And in 40K, there's the same. Uh, even here locally, they, you know, we don't let ourselves have practice outdoors for the first few practices because the ground is all soft and we're going to tear up the ground and we're going to make a mess and hurt ourselves then and then even if we do it's going to be you know field and morass for the whole year if we yep. let, if we like wreck it too early yep so i mean this is this is something that you're going to consider maybe a little less in the moment on the field although even like tree battles could have this you know you're trying to get through the underbrush true uh, but it's more likely to be like maintaining your battlefield itself as opposed to us at least to me for Bellagarth. Right. Uh, then you would worry about like, oh, they're in the swamp. Now's the time to hit them. And again, with, with 40K, of course, it's anything that slows the movement. So if you've got uh, stuff in the middle of the field that makes people slow up, that, that kind of reduces it, that's a good time to hit them while they're uh, slowed in that. Uh, going back to your forest in, um, comment, though, I think you're thinking of the forests here in the West where we don't have a whole lot of undergrowth because when you're in the East trying to go off trail, you're definitely getting embarrassed in the morass there. Like it, those, they got vines and all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. And not even just, you know, out East, but like thinking about it, you and I live in an Alpine desert. We have big trees and stuff, but there's not a ton of undergrowth. No. Uh, the first time I, ac and this wasn't even on the field, but I accidentally like wandered into the uh oregon undergrowth yeah and was suddenly that was uh embarrassed in morass and also embarrassed in person because i was stuck but um <laughs> yeah no, and that's exactly it so the the places where there's thicker forest this would definitely ap apply there as well the next one would be struggling with mountains we don't often have that many mountains necessarily in what we do uh and in both physical and and uh, intellectual war gaming, they wouldn't present that much of an issue. That being said, occasionally we have uneven fields in physical war gaming. For instance, the field where we often do War of the Gate, it kind of has a bow in the middle of it. So it kind of goes between two larger hills, kind of goes into a valley and then comes up on either sides. And 
if your opponent is coming up at you, you definitely have an advantage there. Like if they're struggling with the mountain and you can hit them uh, while they're while they're coming up, you stand a good chance of victory. Yeah, and having to hit anything and go uphill at the same time, and that is a relatively extreme example because those are solid little hills that we have there. They're mm -hmm. they're a serious incline as opposed to most times when you're dealing with incline, it is the matter of you know a few steps. Right. But even then, if you could take advantage of it, why not? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, this is a, of course, you want to make sure that you're not necessarily struggling with the mountain. Um, but, yeah, this is a, a good, good thing to do. The next one would be heavily dispersed. So, as we've said, I think we said in the last episode, one of the tendencies we've noticed in physical wargaming is that people tend to spread out along the front, uh, trying to get as much distance uh kind of uh, controlled in the front there and vegetius recommends against that and we do a little bit too but if you notice that your enemy has done this and you have not it means they're heavily dispersed and so engaging them in in small local actions will yield you a numeric advantage each time uh i talk about it almost like every episode so i'm not gonna you know won't beat on it too much but that that moment that you take one step too far away and you know that it's that is heavily dispersed right there. Yep. yep. And, and again, the same thing in 40K. If you look across the field and you notice that the, the units are too far apart to support one another, uh, it's a good to engage them piecemeal. Don't, don't waste your fire shooting at several different units. Make sure that you engage them one at a time and wipe them off the board. There's a general maxim that you need to, to be guaranteed victory on a large-scale battle like this. You need uh, something like a quarter to half again, the number of troops that the enemy has this is obviously not a universal truth because alexander didn't have that once in his life but it was like general military strategy if you have half again as many people then you are going to win this fight now you might not have that against the entire army but if they get split like this you do when it's just half of their army so right, really right. this entire this entire era area of the book could kind of be summed up of fight them one at a time if you can exactly yep and then the last one doesn't necessarily apply, but I thought I'd include it just because of historical accuracy. It's there. And it is sleeping in quarters. It is generally frowned Do not upon. not attack people in their tents. Yeah, it's generally frowned upon to attack people in their tents or in their hotel rooms. So uh, maybe avoid that last one. The next point that we've, we uh, have talked about before, but again wanted to reiterate, is that the left wing should be secured in some way. Remember that the way that shields face from most armies mean that the right wing is a little bit uh, less often in danger than the left wing is. So if you need to secure one flank, make sure it's the left flank that is getting secured because that's your weaker side. Uh, and if I am remembering right here on this, it's because when the right side advances, just thanks to how it's set up, the shields are more forward for them? Are, are on the strong side. So as they're advancing, the shields are facing the main part of the enemy line, whereas if they're on the other side of the line, their fleshy part of their body is facing the main part of the line. And that is so much more dangerous. Okay, yeah, that's just... Every time I read that, I have that moment of like, but why? And then I have to be like, no, no, we have covered this. Yep, you're a lefty. You're a lefty. It doesn't make uh, intuitive sense to you, but that's okay. The next one is that you want to resist a wedge with a V. Now, not often will you see like a proper wedge being formed with like one person in the center like moving forward in a and like a mathematically distributed formation behind them that's not very common but 
in physical wargaming and in intellectual wargaming, we have fixed edges, typically to our fields or to our boards. And so any army that seeks to take the center before doing anything else, that could be considered coming in with a wedge because they're coming in in the center of the field, not necessarily supporting on the wings. And so the best thing to do here is not to engage them as another wedge, but to actually form into a V and just let them come into you because then you have the element of crossfire going across and you can you can maximize on a, on a kill zone there. Yeah, and I have been on both sides of this and man, I, let me tell you, it works really, really well. It just becomes a meat grinder. It is, oof. It's kind of the equivalent of uh, trapping someone in a valley. Yep. Like, on a large, large scale, if you can set something up like that. But if you're trapping people in valleys in Belagarth, then I want to go to your event. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you got to get out to some of the eastern events. Like I was saying, Ragnarok is such a huge site, and they have an area where they do, like, a full-on forest battle where you have to walk, like, 15, 20 minutes to find somebody to fight because the, the field is that big. And the action is that spread out. Like it was, it was really cool. Uh, the the kind of tactics that you could engage in there. And again, like it gives me a whole new appreciation for the Civil War, being like people had to fight in this, like for reals. Like you can't oh. see five feet. This is nuts. <laughs> There's a reason why they still liked the uh, big fields, two people hitting if they could back then. Oh yeah, I mean like the the wilderness. Oh, we're getting off track, but like the Battle of the Wilderness is one of the examples of why. That thick foliage was was a big issue. But moving on, uh, the next point we wanted to make is that once you're committed to a plan, you don't want to try to make big changes. Now, that's not to say that if you see one of your sides beginning to get weakened, that you don't want to tell them to fall back and, and kind of regroup somewhere else. Like, that's not what we're talking about. It's more like if you're like, okay, we're going to go in with like second formation. And then as you're marching in, you're like, oh, wait a second, let's do fifth formation instead. We're going to explain all these later. Well, that's, that's, you're just mixing things up. If you're planning to do a pincer, don't halfway through be like, wait, no, I'm at a wedge. Exactly. Because I, I and, and some people aren't going to hear, some people are going to be focused. There's going to be just general confusion. So again, if you've got, if you've already made a plan, you should have done so kind of acknowledging, you, you should do so with the knowledge of the enemy. So trust your plan, trust your instincts, make small adjustments as you need to. But the big one, it's the same thing in 40k. If you have a plan, if you have a setup, the worst thing you can do is make no decision at all, is to freeze on the field. So make a move. Do something. If you've got something in mind that you wanted to do, follow through. If it's not working, of course, fall back and regroup. But that's kind of what we're talking about. If you need to change your plan, make sure you fall back first. Do not do it when you're engaging the enemy. That's not the time. Absolutely. Uh, so this, this next point is... It, it was very much iterated in the Sun Tzu text, and I think just about everybody has touched on this point, but it's always provide an escape route for your opponent, uh, because people who are trapped or feel like they are absolutely going to lose or die, uh, they're going to fight a lot harder. There's this this kind of uh, strength that comes to people who know that they're in a, in a death situation. But if you provide an escape route, then people will start to kind of break off piecemeal. The integrity of the line will disintegrate and you can destroy them while they're fleeing. When when it's like, literally, I will fight or die, yeah, everyone's going 100%. If it is mostly fight or die, but oh, hey, there's this one way, you might be fighting at 90%. And that 10% is uh, a much bigger difference than you would think. 
And again, like you got to think that at least, you know, 25, 50% of your line is taking that bait, you know, they're moving off. So that means that your line no longer has the integrity, another 25% or at least thinking about it. So their attention is split. Yeah. Yeah. Providing that little escape route can be, can be a good thing because it, it gives them the false hope of uh, being able to get out of there. A, a thing to remember for yourself, though, is leave yourself an escape route because uh, you might be fighting with only 95% of your mind at that point with the th similar thing. But it is, you know, giving your, going into a fight with no possible out for yourself, pulling that Julius Caesar tear down the walls as we go over our base, uh, is the definition of high-risk, high-reward. Yeah, and, and you want to try to avoid that best you can. And in terms of this, you want to make sure that it's an escape route that you planned that you put into place. You don't want to make your enemy have to give you that because if they're doing it, it's a trap. But if you already have a plan in place to be able to escape, far more, a far higher likelihood of success there. And so on the, on the subject of withdrawals, um, those of you who have been reading along with us will notice that I've cut large swaths of the book kind of out of our notes, the, the, sw the, the parts that deal with retreats. Because in most cases, the, the information that they're providing is far more than we're going to use in wargaming ever. However, uh, there's a couple of things that definitely kind of shine through. And one of those is that you want to use any retreat as an opportunity to set up ambushes. So let me give you an example. Uh, we've got a force advancing up the field and we get into a general engagement and our right wing gets weak to the point where they have to withdraw. They come back and they start to act as a reserve as kind of a rear guard for the center and for the left wing, right? Now let's say that the center and the left wing start to get into trouble too, and they have to fall back. So they, everybody does a general withdrawal. And at that point, you want to break into smaller groups, two or three person groups, and then begin in, in a, a very aggressive wolf packing engagement. So in this way, you're falling back, you're retreating, you're withdrawing, but you've got a plan. You're going someplace with it. You've got uh, uh, something you're going to do to still make use of those smaller numbers. Because like trying to fight in just line versus line, if you've got smaller numbers, is not going to cut it. But if you're doing wolf packing, it gives you a better chance. Other ways of looking at this is, I know this works for Belagarth. You're going to have to tell me if there's a, a good alternative for 40k. Is if you get legged. So like if you know, I guess if you get your movement impaired in 40k. Yeah, there's, I mean, like vehicles and things that have wound tracks occasionally will lose movement if they're getting wounded to a, to a certain point. You have something like that. That person who can't keep up with the rest of the group now could become a uh, ambush, either if they, you know, this would be easier to pull off in Belagarth if you're passing a tank by in 40k, like, what's wrong with you? Don't do that. Not, don't like pretend you're dead because that's against the rules don't do that but if you don't make a big deal of yourself that army might not realize that you are still alive and just legged or might just not see you because you know they're looking at that like army they're chasing down if you can get like beside them or behind them you can cause some damage mm -hmm. or alternatively if that's not something you're going to be able to do if you make them have to like pause to deal with you even if even if you are going to die, if you make them stop to deal with you, that gives the rest of your team time to retreat and find a new solution. And actually, that, that works for 40k as well. Because again, if you've got like a, a, a slower unit or you've got a vehicle, something with a wound track that's kind of out there toward the front, and you know that it's going to die anyways and the rest of your army can kind of get back and get to a stronger position, absolutely drive that straight into your opponents. Most vehicles explode on a six, 
and do mortal wounds. So you've got a, a one in six chance of actually, uh, at the very least, you're going to slow them up to deal with that vehicle. Uh, best case scenario, you take a few of them with you. And I think that parallel is, is in physical and uh, intellectual wargaming, yeah. Excellent. I just didn't know enough about uh, intellectual wargaming to be like, this is the, exactly what you should do here. Hey, as soon as these uh, restrictions are lifted, you and I are going to get together <laughs> for some games and we're going to get you up to speed on some of this. Oh yeah, buddy. The really important point that we want to end this section on is that you need constant battlefield awareness and that this looks different depending on the situation that you're in. So in the case of 40k, for instance, you want to be aware of what your opponent's army can do, what kind of stratagems they have, what sort of faction bonuses they're getting. Uh, definitely be aware of what units are in deep strike because I've absolutely had some games where I've had, you know, Deathwing Terminators or something like that in Deep Strike. We get to round three, they've completely forgotten about them. And then I teleport them onto the battlefield and they're like, oh crap, I did not remember that you had, uh, you know, something off board. So, so keep that in mind too. Make sure that you're remembering whatever reinforcements your, your enemy might be able to bring to the board. But, you know, this is, this is absolutely important in physical wargaming too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and beyond just, you know, battlefield awareness of, like, where is the archer right now? Or any of the other, like, things you need to keep an eye on on the Belgarth field. It's also battlefield awareness, and to help your battlefield awareness, keep an awareness of the battlefield at the same time. Because, like, my requirements for battlefield awareness, when we're out at Bonner Park, and the loudest thing going on is, like, when a loud truck drives by, right. is way different than we're when we're in the gym, and everything's echoing, and, like, I, I need to take into account that the sound is going to be way trickier there than I would. So like, but knowing that is going to affect, as I said, awareness of my battlefield will affect my battlefield awareness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then gear also factors into it as well. Cause we've talked about the difference between having a helm and not having a helm. It muffles everything. It doesn't really matter what kind of helm you have. It's, if it's covering your ears, it's going to muffle things at least a little bit. And that takes some getting used to. I got backstabbed a lot when I first started wearing helms. Well, and I remember we talked about it. Of I was like, do we want to do something for your ears? Because they're completely covered. And you're like, no, I can hear you talking just fine. This should be fine. And for one-on-one -on -one stuff, that was true. But for the person going quietly behind you is a very different situation. So we poked some little ear holes in there and it helps a little bit. But again, it's definitely muffled. And so I keep my head on a swivel. Anytime we say that we drilled holes in your helm so you could hear better, it sounds like you're wearing the helm and I'm doing that to you, and it's a wildly <laughs> different story. Yeah, Thumbs gave me a partial lobotomy. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, again, this, this battlefield awareness, you just have to make these small adjustments. Like I said, when I'm wearing a helm, I keep my head on a swivel. I'm looking around constantly because I'm not necessarily trusting my hearing as much as I normally would. And I wear a helm every time on the field. So I'm looking around all the time, making sure that I've got track of where everybody on the opposing team is and where the archers are. That's that's very important information too. Especially since you and I sword and board a lot less often than we used to. Uh, moment I picked up a spear, where the archer was became literal life and death way faster. And as an opposing archer, like the first people that you hunt are opposing archers. Like that's that's... Priority number one is to shoot the opposing archers. So, shoot yeah. the person who can shoot you. Yep. <laughs> but I think that's uh, that's all we have for this section one maneuvers in action. What do you think, Thumbs? I think uh, we'll be right back with section two formations for battle.
I appreciate the patience of everybody who listens to this show and awaits those small tactical tidbits of knowledge that are, are straight up tactics. Because we know that a lot of the information that we present may seem kind of boring or uh, not important for what we're talking about. Again, we include it because as longtime war gamers, we see the importance of it, but it definitely doesn't have the flash, the panache, the awe of talking about like straight up tactics or formations. But for those of you who have been absolutely patient in this, you will be rewarded right now because we're about to talk about seven formations that Vegetius recommends for going into battle. The first one, the first formation, is an oblong square, which that's the way he describes it. It's a rectangle. I don't know why it's called an oblong square, but it's a rectangle uh, with a large front. Because it's Latin translated. Yeah. Uh, so you want the, the, the largest front, the largest side facing the enemy, of course. Now, this particular formation requires an even and level field to pull it off because you can't have any breaks as you're going forward. And because of its extreme compact nature, it is vulnerable to being surrounded. So it needs to be used when you're superior. This was a move that was kind of built for... Uh... Oh my god, why am I blinking the word? Uh, the... The, the phalanx. This is basically yeah. the phalanx. Like, yep. Big chunk, armed for this, walking forward. This is, uh, it, it is very good if you have a ton of people, but... Uh, yeah, and also what you would think of if you're thinking about a, a classic Roman legion, too. Just kind of a big block, kind of marching forward. Uh, again, it can be useful. I, in 40k, I think about the castle technique, where you have, like, one or two strong characters, and then everybody else is formed around them. That's a lot like this for, first formation, too. Frederick used it a lot. Just, yeah. I mean, it was just the, the style at the time, but like, yeah. Think think Revolutionary War too, just kind of marching at each other, straight lines. Again, pretty pretty simple. Again, and like we said, vulnerable to being surrounded. So if you're, if you're superior in numbers and in quality of troops, you can certainly go ahead with it because it's pretty simple and doesn't require that much coordination. So your second formation is kind of a A shape. It's the uh, oblique with the right side strong. It doesn't start as an A shape, though. That's that's an important thing. It starts kind of like an A, like a line. Starts as a line, turns into an A shape. I had that just about 100% backwards, but the <laughs> uh, idea was correct there. I knew what I meant. And so the idea with this one is you're you're kind of marching at your opponent, and you have a line, but one side, and in this particular case, it's your left side, stays back a little bit. Your center goes a little bit more forward, but not, not heavy engagement range. And then the right side kind of wraps around to an acute angle, which kind of looks like an A. That's what Thumbs was, was kind of getting at right there. Uh, and what this is, is if that front line can, you know, clear up some space, by the time that's, that left side hits, you have much more of your unit and you can kind of just close in on the uh, opponent as you go. It's kind of... Uh, hitting in a diagonal, a uh, straight line at a diagonal. Yep, and uh, and yeah, this is this is a classic thing. Again, Frederick used this a lot. Uh, Alexander used this one a lot. It's and and for us on a, on the smaller scales that we work on, it's more of a you're again you have this uneven line kind of going across, and then you have a strong flankers, both shallow flank and deep flank going in that kind of wrap around and give give you this uh, numeric superiority that then moves down the line in that way. And this typically breaks your opponent because you've got people in front, you got people in back, and folks don't like that. 
related, I wanted on the record that both of us are doing hand motions to, like, explain these things we're talking about in the complete... Like, before we start recording, we're like, we need to remember to... We can't just do hand motions to... And we just did not stop at all. I'm trying to use the hand motions as direction. I'm trying to be like, okay, this is what I'm talking about. I'm going to shape my words. I'm going to really channel... Helping direct your own mind, yeah. <laughs> my wife is Italian, so she's taught me to speak with my hands a little bit. Yeah, so again, I, we know you can't see this, but yeah, so just imagine like an alligator kind of <laughs> closing its jaws is Snap. kind of what we're talking about here with the oblique. So the third formation is very much the same, uh, but it's on the other side. So it's the oblique, left side strong rather than right side strong. And this is good against wedges. So if your opponent is coming at you in a wedge, this is a, another good one rather than the V. And this is because, again, for 40K, it wouldn't necessarily matter. But for regular fighting, majority of fighters are going to be right-handed. So if you're doing this particular oblique and they're coming at you, that means that they're coming at your strong side. So it enables you to strike back in a lot a stronger way than you normally would with your left side. But you also only want to use this third formation if your enemy's right side is weak. So if you're looking across and you're Which like, oh, unusual. they don't really have their... It is unusual. Uh, but if you're looking across and you're like, oh, they have their, their less good units on their right side or they're numerically inferior or something like that, then you might want to do this. But again, you don't want to put strong side versus weak side because that doesn't go well. Bright side, at the numbers we tend to play with... Uh a good way to counter this formation would be get like four or five lefties and put them on that side and they'll be like, yeah, we're set. Yeah, exactly. We don't yeah, have our weak uh, side now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because again, five left-handed fighters can, can change with the numbers that we have. Fourth formation is kind of, we, we kind of already talked about this episode. It's both wings advancing rapidly. So it is mm -hmm. kind of the same technique that you are using to take on a wedge formation itself. But you're spl splitting in the center. Like, that's one of the big things about this, is that your center becomes heavily weakened, and you're moving at your opponent's flanks. And you're not really planning to keep your center, so it's a, it, it's a risk on this one. But, uh, yeah, think of it, the pincer maneuver is used a lot in this kind of thing. It's the, the same concept there. And it provides an early opportunity for an early rout or a collapse of the enemy's forces. Uh, because again, you're, if you can pull it off and you hit both of their flanks hard and you succeed, nobody wants to stand against that. That completely breaks down cohesion and you you definitely get an army that's moving out of there. That being said, it definitely leaves your center exposed and your army is divided. So if your opponent is paying attention and knows what to do and has good command and call, then they can definitely take advantage of that and engage one half of your army before the other one. Yeah, if it goes wrong, is literally everything we were telling you to, you know, do to your enemy in the first, in the first part of this episode. Exactly. Yeah. So this is yeah, this is a, a fairly high risk, high reward one, as Thumb said. Now the fifth formation adjusts this one some, somewhat. It's very much similar to the fourth formation, where your wings advance ahead of the center. But in this particular one, you consolidate your light infantry and your archers in the center. And this prevents that, that opportunity for breaking in, like especially if you have both light infantry and archers. If I look across the field and I've noticed my opponent's army has split and there's a, the center is open and all I see is archers back there, you better believe I'm going to sprint at them. I'm going straight after them. But if there's one or two light infantry, even just one or two, that are there that are kind of acting as blockers, that is a serious issue because you got to stop and deal with them while being shot at from a bunch of different people. 
and they're getting the chance to reload, yeah, it's not good. That's not good. This is something we don't see quite as often in Bell. The closest I was thinking of it, although we don't really do heavy troops and light troops in quite the same way. The way I kind of translate it is more heavy troops or more vets as opposed to like heavily armored troops, although that, that also definitely has an effect. But I mean, also, if you have heavy armor, you're more likely to be a vet anyways. Mm, that's true. Is kind of noobs in the center. Like, you know, the, the, the people who can't, Instead of the, like, oh, let's take our less experienced people and make them go be flanking, let's put them in the middle together and we'll put the heavier kind of people on the outside. Uh, that's a, yeah, I usually think about it in terms of, like, the armor, like, what kind of armament they have. And so even even just a, a sword and a shield, I would almost consider them heavy infantry. That's true. Uh, when I think of light infantry, I'm, I'm thinking, like, Florentiners or single sword, um... You know, something along those lines. It's pretty rare that we think to put them in the center, although it's not a bad idea. Like, this is a good strategy if it, you know, you can keep them to hold for just a minute even. Yeah, and it, it's a good deterrent, like we said. Like, and, and that gives the time for the two flanks to move up. And honestly, I see the fourth formation a lot. Like, it's not necessarily something people do consciously, but just that, that nature to drift toward the edges and a lot of people not liking to be in the center. I... I I, the fourth and fifth formations are honestly very common. And again, people aren't doing them on purpose. They're not sitting there being, oh, Vegetius is fourth, and then doing it. Like, it's it's just something that happens on the field. Yeah, I just think fourth happens more than fifth. And maybe we should change that up because, I, I don't know, something about fifth I really like. Me too. And I think it would work a lot better if, like, you practiced it, you know? Or at least gave instructions beforehand. Uh, sixth formation. The center engages lightly, the right wing pivots perpendicular to the enemy line and advances. This one is also really common uh, and, and uh, it's, it's similar to the third and second formation, the oblique, but you're not coming all the way around. It's not the same idea as a flank. You kind of form up a perpendicular line, like it was saying, and you roll up the line, as it were. You tend to have one person that's an exact like pivot point, like, all right, everyone... You were like, everyone's moving forward, and then everyone to the right of thumbs is going to hard push that angle, and you're going to move into an L shape. Yep. You know, full 90 degrees if you can. And again, this one has the similar effect as the second and third formation, in that it lets you retain uh, local numeric superiority, kind of roll up your opponent's line, uh, threaten them on multiple angles. Uh, so this is this is a good thing to do, and it really weakens the integrity of your opponent's line if you can pull it off. It also works if you manage to get a breakthrough. So if, if we're going up and let's say our right side pushes through on their left, moving into this L formation also contains your opponent and doesn't let them scatter all over the field. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one works on almost any, like as long as you have like three people, this one can work. Because uh, yeah. you, Turkey, and I used to do it a lot of you know face up and i would i would be that hard l and even if i didn't uh get the kill or whatever i changed the angle enough that you know like turkey could you know jump in and or you could jump in kill that person and then go help out over there um so it works on like any scale and it works on just about any level of combat like and it, throughout history this was this move was being done in the civil war this was done at gettysburg yep Yep, if you've seen if you've seen the movie Gettysburg or if you've studied it, you'll know that Chamberlain pulled off this move. Now he was doing it in reverse, 
mind you. He like he was doing it to kind of counter the the flanking from the Confederates, but it was still kind of the same idea, using that right angle in order to maximize your your uh, perspectives and your angles of attack. So the last one is the seventh formation, and this one is to be used when you are inferior uh, in either numbers and or quality. And this is one where you want to have one flank secured. So remember, as we were talking about earlier, if you've got to choose one flank to secure, choose your left flank because it is the uh, naturally weaker of the two flanks. And then you want all of your light troops and cavalry on the unsecured flank to provide kind of a, a picket line and a, a rapid response on that side. Uh, you're not going to be overly mobile with this particular formation, but it does help protect you somewhat from being enveloped and from having a, a super weak side that's vulnerable. Generally, you're going to want to use it when you have less people or less good people with the idea of it just makes it so much harder to take that one step too far and get, you know, picked off. Yep, exactly. So uh, th there we have our, our seven formations. To go over them again real quick, first formation, oblong square with a larger front. Second formation is an oblique with your right wing strong. Third formation, oblique left side strong. Fourth formation, both wings advancing rapidly. Fifth formation, both wings advancing rapidly but having light infantry and archers in the center. Sixth formation, the center engages lightly while the right wing pivots perpendicular to the enemy line like an L. And the seventh formation, you have one flank anchored and all your quick folks on the unanchored side. And with that, I think we're about ready to discuss the general maxims that uh, Vegetius provides. What do you think, Thumbs? Yeah, we're going to do this instead of a battle this week, uh, just yeah. because there were kind of three sections to cover this week instead of the normal two. And it's hard to find a battle that like is that all of the general maxims apply because they're like you got a lot of information that's being put forth, and so it's, yeah, you'd have to do like a campaign. Yeah, yeah, it's not nearly specific enough to have like a battle that really makes sense with it. So we'll be back with uh, some uh, word nuggets of wisdom from Vegetius. Mm -hmm. of reading these books i have kind of come up with like internal voices for these writers that are i am super aware a hundred percent like inaccurate to what this character what this person would have sounded like if the person existed at all yeah oh on top of that too but uh like you know even in my internal monologue i'm like there's no way i could do a latin accent or you know in sun tzu's uh, a chinese ancient chinese accent in a way that one wouldn't be wrong and too horrifically racist so uh i i just it, like my brain comes up with like different ones for them and both vegetius and um machiavelli have the same accent when i read them for me and they're both like such like oh uptight british man and anytime i read this i have to like we're we're gonna read some maxims out here and have to be like no don't do the voice we do have British listeners, and they will absolutely call you out on, on our terrible American attempt at British accents. It's, it's not even, like, bad British accents. It's, like, bad American attempts at bad British accents. Yeah. 
<laughs> is he trying to be Cockney or West Brom or Liverpool? He can't make up his mind. And most of them are like, what are those? Uh, <laughs> our, our English listeners will know. If you want to get real confusing, get, uh, get them to do Cockney rhyming slang. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh, I mean, just watch amazing. My Fair Lady, right? I just, you just got to watch My Fair Lady and you understand the British, uh, all, the, all the intricacies, right? That's how it works. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Um, but our first maxim. It is the nature of war that what is beneficial to you is detrimental to the enemy, and what is of a service to him always hurts you. It is therefore a maxim never to do or to omit doing anything as a consequence of his actions, but to consult invariably your own interest only. And you depart from this interest whenever you imitate such measures as he pursues for his benefit. For the same reason, it would be wrong for him to follow such steps as you take for your advantage. Which is about the wordiest way possible to say what is good for me is bad for him and what is good for him is bad for you. Right. So if, you're, if your opponent takes, like, a high position and expects you to come and meet them in that high position, do not do that thing, because that's exactly what they want you to do. You, you want to try to manipulate the situation so that you have the advantages, so that, again, your, your opponent is coming and playing into your plans. But it's old man in Latin, so it's, like, four paragraphs long. <laughs> exactly. Uh, again, uh, you know, they, they come from a similar root, but Machiavelli and Vegetius, like you say, have a very similar voice in that way. Uh, the next of these maxims, the more your troops have been accustomed to camp duties on frontier stations and the more carefully they have been disciplined, the less danger they will be exposed to in the field. A short way of saying this is train hard, fight easy. Yep. You know, uh, do the rigors that you are going to expect on the field, uh, but do them more, and then the field fighting is going to be easy. In the case of physical wargaming, this is in the case of, you know, camping, other than just going to events, doing hikes out in nature where you have serious inclines, and then, of course, training your body in such a way that you're, you're ready for the fights on the field. And for 40K, it's as easy as making sure that you're running games and getting used to playing in a way that you're going to face in a tournament. Uh, one of the things that I thought of when I first read this was uh, when Alexander the Great tried to attack India and how terribly that went for him. Yeah. Because his people were ready for that environment. Uh, or not his people. India's people were ready for that environment and Alexander's were not. So so again, like you want to... And, and I know the U.S. Or any Russian winter story. Yeah. <laughs> and I know the... Uh, like the current U.S. military, for instance, we have bases set up all over the United States for training in specific different instances. You know, there's there's winter training bases, there's places to go to train for more aquatic uh, sort of missions. Of course, the, most of the basic training is situated in hot areas for obvious reasons. So again, like the, the, the training is specific so that again, if you go from um, basic training to like a desert environment, you're not going, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going from like a Minnesota cool to 120 degrees, uh, that's murder. Uh, it's a little bit easier if you're going from Fort Benning. Men must be sufficiently tried before they are led against the enemy. This is one that I know on some level you and I have argued about, although it, it kind of varies on what the goal is here for on where we argue about, of you are definitely like, don't go to an event until you've had like a year of practice. Mm -hmm. Just so you know what you're doing and you, and you have like a better handle of what you need to do on the field. Yeah. And I think that is true for a lot of people. And I think from like combat perspective, it is absolutely 100% true. 
for Belagarth, I'm a little bit different because there are plenty of people, like our friend Roar, who... He went to an event really early on, and he got the bug really fast. He was utterly useless at that first event. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, from a combat perspective, you are 100% correct. Don't send people to an event till they're ready. Uh, we accidentally prepped people for this once because a couple of us went to Chaos Wars and Stygia, and we came back and we're like, you gotta be ready for it, man. And we started fighting hard enough that, like, when the people went to the event, they were ready for it, man. Right. But on a, like, if you think they'll really dig on the culture, this one's a little less important. For true. Yeah, especially for, like, non-coms and that sort of thing, of course. You know, the, the community is wonderful. And if you're not going to overperform on the field, absolutely, you know, go. It's the same thing with a, with a Warhammer 40k tournament. I'm sure that if you're going more for the social environment and not going to, like, with the mind of, of trying to place, then, yeah, just, you know, you go and have fun. But if you're actually wanting to do well, Try to put at least a year of, of good training in beforehand so you know your army, you know what stratagems to use, you're comfortable with it, and then when you go in, you're not, you're not having any surprises on your own front. Mm-hmm, 100%. Our next maxim, it is better to overcome the enemy by famine, surprise, or terror than by general actions. For in the latter instance, fortune has often a greater share than valor. So this is to say that if you can maneuver on your enemy, if you can get them out of position, if you can use strategy, not so much terror or famine, or, uh, you know, sometimes a little bit of fear works. Don't take this one literally in physical wargaming. Yeah. It, but even then, like, we say a little bit of fear of, like, oh, they're intimidating on the field. Vegetius, how he would want it, again, because people, when they die in his world, stay dead, as opposed yeah. to Belagarth, where they just get back up and you have to go drink with them later. Yeah, th th this is one of those, don't terrorize people. Don't. <laughs> but if you can be scary on the field. Yeah, like I, my, my kit, my armor and that sort of thing is designed to inspire at least a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of fear in my enemy. Uh, and that I use that to my advantage. And that's, again, that's what Vegetius is saying here, because if you're engaging in a general action, there's a whole lot of luck involved. The part that made me go, oh, no, don't really do this, sorry, is famine. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. If you can get them out of position, if you can go, oh, no, we're screwed, then, as we've talked about, they probably are. Yep. Those designs are best, which the enemy are entirely ignorant of, until the moment of execution. Opportunity in war is often more to be depended on than courage. Operational security, for the first part, and if you get lucky, take advantage of it. Yep. In in the case of like making sure your enemy doesn't know what you're doing, if you're planning on doing an oblique, for instance, you want to start lined up directly across from your enemy and then do a slow shift of your line as you're going. You don't want to start off kilter because then your opponent's going to go, hmm, I think they're going to go for a flanking attack. You know, that's that's not what you want. So you want to make sure there's at least a little bit of deception there involved so they don't know what's coming before it gets there. And kind of the same thing in 40k. You don't want to super telegraph what you're about to do. Uh, if you can get uh, code words is a great one for this. Even if they're not, you know, like super duper secret code words. But if one team yells, I don't know, fireworks. And you know what fireworks means. Then that's a way that you can kind of like maintain this throughout. As opposed to like, go left. Right. Now, the advantage... The, the, the thing is, you need the, everyone in your team to be trained to know what, I don't know, fireworks, banana, whatever, what, what the code word means, as opposed to, go left, which they'd all go, oh, I should probably go left now. Another good way of doing that is if you're giving instructions before the battle, make sure that you're kind of huddled in 
with the people that you're talking with. Make sure you're speaking in low tone because uh, voices carry pretty well across fields. So if you're sitting there loudly announcing what you want to do, if somebody's paying attention on the other side, hopefully they pass that up the chain of command and they act accordingly because if not, they're dumb. We are going to pincer them. And the other guys on the other side are like being like taking notes. Like, can you speak a little louder, please? In what way will you pincer us? At what moment do we need to be ready for this? Our next one. To debauch the enemy's soldiers and encourage them when sincere in surrendering themselves is of special service, for an adversary is more hurt by desertion than by slaughter. Again, this one doesn't necessarily happen when you're on the field in <laughs> battle, but this one kind of speaks more to like the rigidity of your team's ranks. So if like you're on a, a team, for instance, and like, for instance, like we, we come from a relatively small realm and we've never had like a super exclusive unit here that was like exclude, like excluded other people. But if we did, like, let's say there was a larger unit and they were really exclusive, that is going to like, harden your opponent's resolve, harden everybody else's resolve into resisting that one, that one unit. For instance, the Urukai weren't exclusive, but they controlled like half the realm at one point. And so anytime there was a unit battle called, the rest of us just ganged up on them. Yeah, they're, they're just, we have to deal with them because otherwise we are messed. If we didn't, they took hardcore advantage of this dissension in the ranks. They refused to, to make alliances with other people, too. Like, they were like, no, we're going to work alone. We're going to work by ourselves. And so, again, if they, had, if they had allowed people to kind of work with them a little bit more, they probably would have seen more success. Now, again, th there were several years there where they stomped the field. They had all the best fighters. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it was, it was definitely there was a hegemony. They had a long... We, we learned everything we know by throwing ourselves against the Urukai and see what would work. So we are never slandering them as people. <laughs> No, that yeah, they were our, our first crucible. They were what we learned against. So and learned for, from. I was part of the Urukai for a while, so they were very instrumental in our in our process. But yeah, uh, again, this is less less applicable toward what we do. But allow people to surrender. Be be gracious to them when they do. If somebody comes over from another unit, don't don't belittle them. Don't berate them because you never know what might shake out of it. And it it's dicks with you there are people that usually unintentionally said something that i found kind of offensive about a unit or a realm that i was in and like from that moment on like when i saw them at events that was like the first thing i thought about them so right, don't do yeah. that because it doesn't just last that event that'll last forever for a long time even people time. i like and then like the first thing i think is like they said this thing to me yeah uh, like we said, reputation is fairly important in these in these smaller communities in the Titan Minute community. It is better to have several bodies of reserves than to extend your front too much. We've discussed this one ad nauseum. I, I, I'm sorry, yeah. I don't have anything new for this. Nope, it's, it's, we've talked about this before. It's better to have people in a position in order to respond rather than spreading out your front too much. Just avoid doing that if you can. A general is not easily overcome who can form a true judgment of his own and the enemy's forces. If you recall Sun Tzu's, uh, if you uh, have knowledge of your enemy and of yourself, you're going to do pretty well in battle. That's This is Vegetius's version of that. Uh, on one level, it's what we've talked about. If you want to learn how to beat a style, use it. But also just being aware of your own weaknesses and being aware that you are not the Grand Poobah unbeatable leader and knowing where your weaknesses are, you know, 
Uh, I'm not a bad leader, but I'm really good at, uh, I'm really bad at, like, the fine detail work. Okay, I know I need to be prepared for that. And if I do that, I'll be better off. Right. Right. Or, or if you know that uh, you have particular weaknesses in fighting, that sort of thing, try not to rely on formations or on tactics that don't specialize in what you do. If you are primarily a fleet unit, which is to say that you are highly mobile and you don't like to do line fighting, then don't order your people to form up in a line and hit the center. That's not where you belong. God, my fighting got so much better once I learned to stop trying to do line fights. See, I, I actually kind of like them, but I have to be geared specifically for them. I have gotten good at them, but it is not my natural inclination when I'm leading a group. And that is an important distinction. Granted, yeah. <laughs> Valor is superior to numbers. It is better to have three good fighters than five bad fighters. Yep. Uh, this is something he's talked about before. Uh, the quality of troops matters more than the number of them. So if you can choose between the two, make sure that you've got the quality. And of course, morale. I mean, valor goes both ways in, in not just skill of arms, but also the morale, the, the desire, and the, the confidence in winning. When you have, you know, I mean, I, I use this one all the time. When you, me, and Turkey are working together, we really enjoy working together. We know we're good together. We are confident in what we can do. And I'll take that over you know, six people that I don't know. And I'm like, oh, um, hmm. God, I hope this is going to turn out well. Like, At that point, you're relying on luck. Yeah. The nature of the ground is often of more consequence than courage. Again, we've, we've talked about this before. You want to have ground that capitalizes on what you do and the, the strengths of that army. If you're heavy infantry, you want to have difficult ground so that the cav can't run circles around you that you can fortify and make snares in. If you have heavily cav, you want to make sure that you've got open ground that favors your heavy mobility. You can be as brave as you want charging up that hill, but if they have a cannon on the top of it, there's no one's going to have a cannon in Belgarth, but you get my idea. Uh, it's not going to do you any good. Yep, so uh, make sure that you know the ground, make sure you know what your army is capable of, and use the ground to your advantage. Few men are born brave. Many become so through care and force of discipline. Don't put someone out on the battlefield who's never done anything. They could be the bravest person on earth, and they're still just like, oh, I don't know what's happening. But me, who's been doing this for... What did we determine now? We're at 17 years? 18, 18 years? Yeah, something like that, yeah. We're at 18 years. Yeah, I, even if I'm, you know, I was not brave at the start. I am now to given levels of brave. Well, think about, for instance, I know we both had this, this, uh, this habit and most people do in when you first start physical war gaming, closing your eyes, closing your eyes when you're throwing a shot, closing your eyes when somebody's throwing a shot on you. It's just this instinctive reaction to protect and like wince away and it is one of the best ways to die. But everybody does it because most people are afraid of getting hit. Yeah. And it's not even just closing your eyes. Like you, you beat that one pretty fast, but you also have to learn to not like do the like look away, lean away thing. Right. Which is the thing I'm, it's honestly the thing I'm most worried about when we come back that I'm going to do like. The kangaroo boxing stance. Super rookie stuff like that. Like, yeah, exactly. And be like, how, how much have I forgotten here? <laughs> I hope it's a bit like muscle memory. I hope. <laughs> An army is strengthened by labor and enervated by idleness. 
Uh, this is this is pretty uh, like right now, for instance, we're trying to run a class thing uh, through the the realm, which is to say that we've got a few instructors and we try to do a uh, like a video presentation every week or every two weeks. And when we've done these sorts of things, when the realm is active, you know, when everybody's able to practice and those sorts of things, uh, these classes actually have they have a pretty good attendance rate. Like people are usually pretty attentive about this sort of thing. Our attendance rate has been decent, better than I would have expected, but you know, it's been lower than normal because our army is idle. We're not actively practicing in the things that we like to do. We're not actively doing the fighting. People aren't usually actively doing anything during a pandemic. So, of course, the interest wanes. Uh, I mean, this is real straightforward. The, the unit that's out there fighting every day is going to do much better than the unit that lounges around all the time and is like, oh, I guess we should go out and fight. Yep. Habits. You get rusty. <laughs> you, you, good habits breed good fighting. Bad habits breed bad fighting. Troops are not to be led to battle unless confident of success. Uh, this is a little less for... I mean, it, it does apply in Belagarth too, but like this is a little less important for us. Don't, don't go to a campaign you know you're going to lose. It, it, has, a, it has a much bigger effect when it's if you lose, you die, as opposed to us, where if you lose, well, hope you learned something. That being said, if you're brand spanking new and you want to jump into one of the group tournaments, like going up against like the EBF and the Horde, God Squad, all that sort of thing, you may want to make sure that you're prepared for that, because entering that otherwise, it can hurt. Yes, go into that knowing what you're going into. And there is a thing I have seen new people do too often, of they jump in and they immediately are trying to fight the the best fighter on the field. And there are times, I mean, there are times that hopefully they're sitting there and teaching them, but like, if it's in the middle of the battle, there's a good chance that they're going to kill you and you might not even understand what happened to you. Right. Yep. Like, you're not even learning anything from it. And you can be, and people can become disheartened by that. You know, if you if you're going out there and you're not necessarily prepared mentally or physically for what the rigors of the field entail, then a person be can become demoralized by uh, biting off more than they can chew. Which note, if you ever find yourself doing that on like a big battlefield, and you're like, man, I've got this thing coming up. Oh, this this new guy's coming up against me. I don't have time to deal with it. Whack, he's done. Maybe after the fight, go find that new guy and, like, you know, maybe introduce yourself or, like, oh, hey, that was, like, that was real brave of you. Do you want to do some, uh, like, spars or something? Because that can help balance out that uh, disheartening factor. Absolutely. Novelty and surprise throw an enemy into consternation, but common instance, incidents have no effect. So, basically, the idea here is you want to do something that your opponent is not expecting. So if, if there's a, a way that they want you to fight or a way that they plan on you fighting, it is always good to do something new. It is always good to change up your tactics a little bit. Again, don't, don't stray too far from the things that you're good at. Don't go away from your strengths, but definitely change up your tactics so that you're not predictable. This is good in one-on-one -on -one fighting too. Like I'm thinking about the numbers of times that you know, I've developed a, a pattern. For instance, for a long time there, I was the scorpion rap king of Stygia. I, w I used that, like every other shot was a scorpion rap. I would do a setup shot, and then I would do a scorpion rap. And I was murdering people for like a year or two. I was just, this, this rap was just devastating. And then somebody figured out how to beat it, 
and they taught everybody else and I couldn't get a kill. I couldn't get a kill for, for a good couple of months because I was, why isn't this working? Well, people knew it and they predicted it. And so I had to, I had to figure out how some other shots. Uh, I had the exact same thing with the lefty C wrap into the kidney. Oh, I love that wrap. I, I figured out an extra little tweak that was doing real effective. And as soon as someone figured out how to block that, I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, because you're kind of out of position. It's a lot like with the scorpion wrap. You're reaching up and over. And if somebody blocks it in the right way, you're massively out of position. Uh, but not just uh, surprising your enemy. Uh, the more things you are aware of, the more things you have experience in, the harder it is for you to be surprised because you will have the same reaction your enemy will have to being surprised. That, like, whoa, wait, what? And mm -hmm. even if it's just three seconds, especially in something like a one-on-one, -on -one, three seconds is more than enough time to kill somebody. Absolutely. He who rashly pursues a flying enemy with troops in disorder seems inclined to resign that victory which he has had before obtained. If your enemy is running away and you're pursuing them, you still have to, like, focus. You can't just, like, mad melee run! Because then both sides are just bad melee running. And I've definitely seen it as the case of, like, you know, you got one side that kind of falls back, has to fall back because they've lost the superiority in some way. You have the one side that starts to pursue, and of course they start to spread out because some of them are faster than others. The side that was losing is able to form up again and punches back and is able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. That wouldn't have happened if their, uh, if their opposing team was able to consolidate themselves before pursuing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's real easy to do because they're like, yeah, they're running, go! And it's not always best to immediately go. And you find this out... The people get thirsty. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% accurate. But you gotta, you gotta control that thirst. You gotta walk... You gotta, you gotta not drink it all at one time. Don't burst your stomach. Small sips. I, I think you've taken this analogy far enough, my dude. <laughs> well, then let's have the next maxim. An army unsupplied with grain and other necessary provisions will be vanquished without striking a blow. Eat. Make sure that you have the foundation. Be getting your, your proper staples. As balanced a diet as you can possibly manage while at an event or at a tournament. Make sure that you're giving fuel for your fire. Any new, brash, like, 20 to 25-year-old fighter who tells me, oh, man, I've been on the field all day. I haven't even stopped for water. I'm like, you're dumb. That, that's not as impressive as you think it is. I'm not impressed. <laughs> I, I am worried on your behalf. I, I'm kind of horrified, actually, here, so... <laughs> yeah. And I have been that fighter, too, which is why I get to make fun of them. Yep. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's real simple. Eat. We have had so many episodes on, like, even what to eat. Just, it's so important, guys. And we never think of it. Even if it's Cheetos and fruit snacks, that is better than nothing. It took me, like, the better part of a decade to learn this, and I'm just like, how? A general whose troops are superior in both number and bravery should engage in the Oblong Square, which is the first formation. I think we kind of talked about that when we were talking about the first formation. Yeah, this is, and you have to remember, this is just at the edge of antiquity, where, I mean, we still use the rectangle, but, like, they lived for using the rectangle. Uh, again, especially if you've got a superiority both in number and in quality, absolutely. 
Like it's just a nice oh, yeah. solid formation that that keeps you from being over overexposed. He who judges himself inferior should advance his right wing obliquely against the enemy's left. This is the second formation. Again, this is you get that local numeric superiority. You're advancing with your strong side, your strong shield side, and you're able to kind of wrap up that enemy line with that A shape, the, the little nom nom nom. Uh, a semi-pincer on the edge down there, the shallow and deep flanks. And then you can you can kind of turn that around. Again, the number the number inferiority doesn't matter as much when you're able to get that kind of angle on your opponent. If your left wing is strongest, you must attack the enemy's right according to the third formation. At this point, he's just kind of like reminding us the formation importances. And giving us uh, context as to when to perform them. Which makes it even, like, you know, down to a sentence. Like, oh, crap, which formation do I use in this situation? Bam. Vegetius has me covered. Mm-hmm. The fourth formation. Uh, the general who can depend on the discipline of his men should begin the engagement by attacking both of the enemy's wings at once. The fourth formation. Uh, again, like we said, that one leaves you pretty exposed. So you got to be pretty confident in your forces to want to pull that one off successfully. If you hesitate, this will really backfire on you. You, mm -hmm. you have to, like, move with purpose here. He whose light infantry is good should cover his center by forming them in its front and charge both the enemies, both the enemy's wings at once. This is the fifth formation. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well done, Vegetius. For once, I don't have anything to, like, make fun of you for on this. Yeah, we, good job. We have no, no fights to pick with the dead guy. <laughs> He who cannot depend either on the number or courage of his troops, if obliged to engage, should begin the action with first his right and endeavor to break the enemy's left, the rest of his army remaining formed in a line perpendicular to the front and extended to the rear like a javelin. This is the sixth formation. Remember that L we were talking about. Yeah, javelin is not a thing I would have thought of, but again, javelins were a much bigger thing back then, so yep. I guess I can kind of see what is going. Yeah. If your forces are few and weak in comparison to the enemy, you must make use of the seventh formation and cover one of your flanks either with an eminence, a city, the sea, a river, or some protection of that kind. The edge of the world will suffice. Use edge of the world to your advantage. Yeah. Yep. He who trusts his uh, cavalry should choose the proper ground for them and employ them principally in the action. So if you've got primarily cavalry or you've got a lot of fast attack troops for 40k, uh, you want to definitely choose an area where you can employ them the best. In the exact same level, he who depends on his infantry should choose a situation most proper for them and make most use of their service. Pretty straightforward. The exact same thing, but with infantry. Which I just imagine the first general to be like, oh my god, I never thought of that. Put my infantry where they'll be useful. Well, you know, Vegetius is thorough, if anything. And uh, <laughs> I think it's better to over-explain in this case than under-explain. He's not as bad as Machiavelli, but man, I like you, as we talked about, Machiavelli was inspired by Vegetius, and damn, it shines through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they come from similar literary traditions, I think. When an enemy spy lurks in the camp, order all your soldiers in the daytime to their tents, and he will be instantly apprehended. 
Uh, another good way of saying this is if you are unsure about everybody's commitment or everybody's loyalty to the unit, uh, ask them all to do something small, some sort of small effort to kind of prove a loyalty of some sort. And if somebody's reticent to do so, that shows you. And keep in mind on it. Yep. Beware of how you treat social experiments on your friends, but like everyone does them. They're just, yeah, <laughs> they are what they are. On finding the enemy has notice of your designs, you must immediately alter your plan of operations. If you want to win. Oh, they're going to split. Yeah. Oh, they're going to split prep for that. Oh, guess it's time not to split then. Or, uh, it, it, like, there was, for instance, I like to use the example of the year that I stumbled upon the Gelf meeting and they were planning on betraying the Urukai in a very specific way. They were like, we're going to just not engage them and then everybody else can mop them up as the fight goes on. So what the Urukai did for the following days was just run full tilt at the Gelf. And the Gelf didn't change their plan. They just, they just accepted that charge every single time. And I think that things would have gone better for them if they had realized that their plans had been out in the open and had changed their tactics. Because they didn't win either. On top of that, sometimes you're aware that your tactic hasn't worked, but you're like, well, crap, we planned for this. I don't know what to do now. Right. And people get, like, stuck. So, you know, at the very least, have a backup plan. Yeah. One or two. Mm. Consult with many on proper measures to be taken, but communicate the plans you intend to put in execution to few, and those only of the most assured fidelity, or rather trust no one but yourself. This is, again, kind of operational Operational security. security. Yep. Something we stress a lot. Uh, there's nothing wrong with consulting, though. Like, for instance, there there are many things that I consider myself fairly proficient in that I don't necessarily need anybody else's opinion on. There are a lot of other matters, and you got to be honest with yourself. Like, really be honest with your strengths and weaknesses, but you're going to have things that you definitely know and things you don't know. And so there's nothing wrong with consulting with people about the things that you don't know. The issue comes in in revealing to them how you intend to use that information, revealing to them your plans. So consult with experts, bring in a, a, a large group of advisors, but if you're actually doing the planning, trust only a small group of loyal people or no one at all. Well, and beyond just experts, like I find it can be very useful to have someone that can give me advice from outside the unit. Like I might talk to you about a Gelf thing, or you've yeah. talked to me about Dark Angel stuff, but you're not necessarily telling me what you decided on. You were just getting some of my thoughts because I might see it from a different angle from yeah, them. exactly. That's a, that's another really good way of taking this passage. Punishment and fear thereof are necessary to keep soldiers in orders and quarters, but in the field they are more influenced by hope and rewards. Be careful on this one. Punishment doesn't mean like, I mean, clearly it doesn't mean 50 lashes, you're going to get kicked out of the event and probably the sport. There are ways to kind of like punish without it being probably what Vegetius means by punishment. And you want to make sure they're consistent too. Like you don't want to be threatening something and then never follow through on it because then there is no threat of punishment. People know they can just get away with anything. So if you've got certain codes of conduct within your realm or within your unit and people are violating those codes of conduct, if you're not punishing them in some way, then what's the point of even having codes of conduct? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I guess I was thinking much more like, you know, oh, you didn't perform on the field how you wanted, but your, you know, code of conduct thing is a much less horrifying way to translate this. So, <laughs> Not just 50 lashes for not killing enough people or whatever. Uh, yes, exactly. That's 
But in the second part too, like remember when we were talking about either last episode or the episode before, that when you're actually on the battlefield, that is not the time to focus on criticism. That is not the time to try to be fixing things or uh, trying to make people change what they're doing. That is the time for trying to build them up trying to remind them of what their strengths are, trying to remind them of what they can do on the field, and filling them with the courage to go and do so. Beyond even just the, the most common way I see this in Belagarth is when you know that you are severely overpowered, being like, oh, we got this, loudly saying stuff like, oh, Shy's a scrub. Like, you know, uh, teasing their high-level people. And a lot of times the, the high-level people will, like, play along with it, being like, oh, yeah, I'm nothing. Um, you got nothing. That's a that's a really good way of like bringing that kind of uh, optimism that they were talking about here. But even beyond just that, just being like, isn't this fun? God, this is great. Reminding them why they're on there. That level, even yeah, even if they're getting, even if they're just getting kicked to heck, uh, they will be like, yeah, you're right. This is fun. Let's do this. Exactly. That morale goes a long way toward victory too. Good officers never engage in general actions unless induced by opportunity or obliged by necessity. Don't just engage your opponent willy-nilly or because you are thirsty for combat. You want to make sure that you're doing so with opportunity. Recall the first section of this episode when we were talking about good opportunities for engagement. Uh, honestly, you shouldn't be engaging unless you have one of those opportunities or unless your opponent for forces the conflict because sometimes you just you can't help it. You have yeah, to sometimes you don't have a choice, but when you pick your, pick your battles, nope, put some of those back. That's too many battles. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> I, I, I read that on some meme or something, and I love that. That's like my favorite joke now. Yeah, that's, that's just it. That's all. That's very straightforward. Yep. To distress the enemy more by famine than by sword is the mark of consummate skill. In real war, yes. When you're out there playing with your friends, don't don't attack their their mess tent. Don't uh, don't be burning down the stores of supplies. That's not cool. That's not how you make friends. That, you know, feed your friends. This is like giving people food is like half the way I show my affection in life. But you're you're also from Norwegian descent. That's just kind of in your blood. Oh, I am so Norwegian. <laughs> um... But yes, that is, uh, do not do this in real life. But maybe if, you know, you can wear that team out and you're not tired yet, I guess you could maybe, I know, I am stretching here, but you yeah. are. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure if this one has a direct parallel or if it's just don't, don't starve your friends. <laughs> Many instructions might be given with regard to the cavalry. But as this branch of service has been brought to perfection since the ancient writers and considerable improvements have been made in their drills and maneuvers, their arms, and the quality and management of their horses, nothing can be collected from their works. Our present mode of discipline is sufficient. He's basically saying there's no, you shouldn't try to improve on the cavalry, and at this point I'm going to pick a fight with a dead guy. Because you always want to find different ways to use your fast attack stuff. You always want to find different ways of catching your opponent off guard. Just because they've always done it a certain way doesn't mean that that's the way to do it. I honestly think here we've talked about the fact that Vegetius is not actually a soldier, so he just doesn't know what to do with cavalry and he doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So he's like, yeah, just do what we're doing. It's fine. You have to remember... Especially in antiquity, and by this point people had a better idea, but in the, a lot of the early days of cavalry, people who knew what to do with a horse were like 
almost like magicians on some level. Like they they knew the you know the the secret arts of how to fight with a horse and how to raise a horse and how to make a better horse for stuff. And if you didn't know that stuff, you were just like, I don't even know what's happening right now. And it was such a trip for the European uh, societies because many of them, the cavalry was taken from the noble class because those who, who could afford to keep and, and maintain horses. But when they started meeting the Eastern steppes tribes, like the Huns and the Mongols, people who were all horsemen, like who had all grown up on horses, whose way of life was the horse, that was surprising. Like they had no idea what to do with that. And honestly, it stayed true until the invention of black powder like counteracted the advantage of horses and then we got tanks yeah from antiquity to honestly like not far terribly far off from the napoleonic wars that group no one ever knew what to do with them yep so i understand that vegetius doesn't get it i just think it's funny he doesn't want to admit that he doesn't get it hey frederick knew what to do with his horses and he did just fine yeah i mean that's frederick Dispositions for action must be carefully concealed from the enemy, lest they should counteract them and defeat your plans by proper expedience. Like we were saying before, if you're setting up for an oblique and you're really obvious about it, you got that offset line obviously going for a little wrap on the end, it doesn't work because then your opponent can prep for it. You have to have a level of deception there uh, so that they can't necessarily see what's coming. Individual fighting much the same. If you heavily telegraph a shot, then they are going to block it. They're just going to, if they know what they're doing. Which you have to assume your opponent knows what they're doing. Just always, pretty much. Like, it's almost better to assume that they know more than they do. I mean, that's risky too, but, like, it's almost better to assume they're smarter than they are than dumber than they are. Oh, absolutely. Underestimating your opponent is probably the most dangerous thing you can do in any sort of uh, wargaming or real combat. Uh, that, that sort of cockiness, that, uh, that confidence that borders on bravado, it doesn't do you any favors. But yeah, I th those are the maxims of Vegetius. The rest of this, this chapter or the rest of this little section is just him saying how cool his emperor is and how he knows that the emperor is going to use this book to revitalize Rome and bring it back to its golden days. Uh, spoiler alert, it didn't. But, it, but, but this book did become one of the preeminent uh, texts read in Europe. Again, uh, when we were talking about this at the very beginning of the book, uh, this book was a must-read for not just military personnel, but also philosophers, historians, uh, royals. Like, this was a very popular book. For century, for over a thousand years, honestly. Yeah. Um, which is super impressive. There is, there, it's not in our versions, there is a, like, third part to Machiavelli's book, but it's all about the Navy, and a lot of times it doesn't get, like, translated or put in. Vegetius's book. V what, what did I say? You said Machiavelli's book. Oop, okay, see? They're the same person. I, I, it's just my running <laughs> theory now. I just wanted to make sure... Yeah. Nope, nope, that's... Thank you, thank you. There's a third part of Vegetius's book, which is mostly about the Navy, and honestly, neither of our editions even has it in there. Nope. Just, it's not really applicable to most of our things. Yeah, and again, like, until they come out with Battlefleet Gothic, I don't think I'll even track it down. Like, what once the once Games Workshop sees the wisdom of bringing back Battlefleet Gothic and the fact that their stock price is going to soar from me alone, you know, at that point we'll start yeah, studying more Yeah, specifically from tactics. you. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, well, that's our show today. We, we talked about some tactics and maxims. We were looking at maneuvers and action and the actual formations for battle. And then we've kind of gone over just the general maxim that uh, Vegetius provides. Uh, come back next time and uh, learn more about the uh, what it's like to be a Imperial Guardsman. Other than, oh my god, I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah, which there is a lot of that, but there's also other elements as well, and we're going to be going over that. But for this week, if you haven't had nearly enough Art of Wargaming in your life, you can check out our Instagram and Facebook, The Art of Wargaming, and Art of Wargaming Podcast, uh, r relatively speaking, uh, where I'm uh, posting memes and uh, little information things. You can vote on the next book. Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff going on there. And also, if you if your ears are still tickling for some good shows, we've got other wonderful listening opportunities on the Earworm Network. Yeah, there's uh, a whole host of them coming up at this point, so I'm not even sure which ones are going to be out at that point. But you can check out things about nerdery, you can check out things about comic books, you can check out horror movies, pretty much anything. If you like Warhammer 40k or Belagarth, there's probably something else you will like on our uh, sister shows. Yeah. That's a pretty good bet. But for this episode, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. Mm -hmm.